0: CSI or law and order SVU.
1: (laughs) In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition, it's intuition, which is really based on just experience with
0: everyday objects that suggest reason. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This is a podcast all about psychology. My name is Hunter Mulcair and I am joined by Amy Donaldson. This episode we're continuing on with our discussion of antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy or psychopaths. So we discussed this disorder in pretty exhaustive detail in pod 29, which is two pods ago. It's probably a good idea to have a listen to that one if you are a little bit confused about what those things. We have a really good chat about that. But as a refresher, antisocial personality disorder... Is fascinating disorder and it overlaps with psychopaths or psychopathy and sociopathy. And it's a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others. And it seems to begin in childhood or early adolescence. The reason it's fascinating is it includes things like breaking the law, being deceitful, impulsivity, being aggressive, disregard for the safety of others and self. And what's really, really creepy is the lack of remorse or guilt. It's a really, really interesting thing. So Amy and I were chatting and we were thinking, well, we don't really work with antisocial personality disorder populations as clinicians and we just don't have that much experience with it. So we decided to get someone on to talk about working with this group. Something that to give us a flavour of what it's like to work with that you can't get from a textbook.
1: So we have with us today Liz Daff, who's a forensic and clinical D psych Liz and I have work together in community and so I've seen her wonderful work and so we thought that we would chat to Liz about you know her thoughts on antisocial PD and try and get inside that head no pressure (laughs) so welcome Thanks. Uh, So we're all set up here with, with tea and pastries and things. So we thought that we would start off by, I guess, asking what do you think draws people to working with people who harm others and don't have a lot of remorse? That's the thing that's uncomfortable for us.
2: Well, I think it varies quite a lot, obviously, like with all areas of psych. I think for me personally, initially getting involved with forensics was a lot broader than just working with people with ASPD or psychopathic traits, it was more an interest in understanding people and understanding how people can engage in behaviours that are against the law or how people end up involved in our justice system and what's going on for them psychologically. I think forensic psychology often seems attractive because of Criminal Minds and TV shows. CSI. CSI, definitely. (laughs) In fact, I was laughed at when I sang the Law and Order theme tune at the beginning of a class, (laughs) and only my forensic co-students got it. But all jokes aside, I think it can be an introduction of what forensic psychology might be, but is really not what it is. So I think when we look at what people do on something like Criminal Minds, it can seem really interesting and engaging but whether there's an evidence base and whether we're actually able to sort of make these broad sweeping claims and fun- suddenly target exactly who's committed a crime is not actually that realistic. So it seems really enticing.
0: It seems very exciting, doesn't it? It seems very
2: exciting, yeah. And I think there's elements of that that definitely are involved or are present in forensic psych. But the work that a forensic psychologist does itself is is not quite Oh, it's exciting. (laughs) Not quite the same.
0: I think I was interested about what's interesting about working with, you know, this kind of severe end of that prisoner forensic population. Like I know in cancer world, I find it very interesting when I get complex cases and kind of there's a lot of exciting psychological stuff going on. Like you can see lots of theories about anxiety and mood and trauma and adjustment and all these things kind of going together and it's quite exciting to kind of piece together and I guess I was wondering what's that like working with psychopathic people or antisocial kinds of people what's the hook there?
2: Well I think it's sort of similar to how you've described working with cancer patients that's something that I would find incredibly difficult much much harder than working with somebody who is presenting with Rates of antisocial personality disorder, or who very much doesn't want to be
0: how. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I guess that's it. Is we, we ask each other the same things? We ask each yeah. other how, and so exactly, exactly why one person is drawn to one area of psychology versus another. I guess yeah. is I don't know if that's even an answerable question. But I think similar in that I find it really interesting, and I know lots of. People who work in forensics find it really interesting the complexity of these clients, how much they have going on historically at the time leading up to offending the comorbidity with things like substance use and mental illness because of course while we're sort of talking about antisocial personality and psychopathic traits people don't all have mental illness in forensics and so there's complexity even within that and the sorts of mental illnesses that people present with and how they cope with those and the extensive trauma histories that a lot of the clients have whether somebody is actually lacking in remorse or whether they're presenting as though they lack in remorse, because that's an easier way and a more palatable way to deal with what they've done, like um, an attachment or something like that. Yeah, so you know, if you sometimes you'll you'll see clients who seem like they're justifying their crime, whatever it might be. It seems like they're justifying their crime and trying to excuse what they've done, and often that's not a lack of remorse, though sometimes it is. A lot of the time, that can be them trying to play down what they've done and trying to somehow incorporate it into who they're becoming. Mm. And so I think like when we talk about not labelling someone with schizophrenia as a schizophrenic, the same sort of concepts apply in forensics when we're talking about how somebody who has committed a crime doesn't become that crime, like a murderer. Yeah. So how you actually work with someone. And I'm not saying that any, as as a proviso, as a forensic psych, I haven't met a forensic psych that excuses any of these behaviours. And so I think working in forensic psychology is very much about putting aside what someone thinks is right and wrong on the one hand Mm. in terms of committing offences and looking more at the psychology of the individual. Put aside the behaviour and look at the function of what's going on. Yeah. And I think... Lots of forensic work goes into offending behaviours and how we, I suppose, treat offending yeah. behaviours and that's, that's one aspect of it and that's where you do delve a little bit more into social expectations and, and law-abiding and pro-social behaviours, all outside of things. But that's, it's a little bit separate from when we're looking at the psychology of uh, mental illness or personality disorder or something like that and looking more at the function of the behaviors how
0: fascinating so like on that sort of label kind of idea like what i was kind of curious about was how useful is the label in say a prison population how useful is the label the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder or or psychopathy for example i
2: think it varies again i'm still fairly new to this field but in my experience i don't find a label of antisocial personality disorder particularly helpful mainly because as you guys were chatting about on your pod about aspd it's so behaviorally defined yeah. this is why there's such an overrepresentation of it in a prison population it's not because just all of these personality traits happen to be in offenders it's that offending is a criteria for the disorder yeah so there's this sort of bias towards this overrepresentation of aspd in an offending sample yeah um I think that's problematic when we think about what personality is. If we're thinking about personality as presenting in behaviours, you know, we talk about something like borderline or narcissistic PD, there's behavioural elements that we can look at to inform us of what might be going on at a personality level, but in defining it by such behaviours such as, law-breaking, and as you said, that being so socially determined, it sort of sways the stats a little bit.
1: Well, yeah, is then something like psychopathy that's more psychologically based, is that actually more useful? To an
2: extent, I think it can be very informative in how you might go about treatment Mm -hmm. and what that might look like. Short of assigning a label to someone that's very hard to shift, I think it's something that needs to be done really cautiously. And a lot of the time I think it can be more useful to just describe the traits that someone's presenting with. And kind of have that in the back of your mind that this fits with those traits. Yeah, and I think as you guys were saying on your other pod, when you're looking at something like lying, trying to treat psychopathy isn't teaching someone how to not lie, it's Mm. teaching them how to lie better. I think with that sort of stuff in mind and the um, manipulative tendencies that can come Mm. with someone with psychopathy, that can shape how a clinician goes into treatment. And particularly in something like forensics, (laughs) I get the impression, certainly compared to um, my clinical training, there's a difference in how you approach things that clients say. And I think in forensic work you absolutely still – spend a lot of time building a rapport and getting to know a person and getting to understand what's important to them and what works for them and all of that sort of groundwork that you do in clinical work. But depending on the setting and who you're working with, you take a lot of it with a grain of salt.
0: One of the questions we had was like, how is working with this population different to, say, working in a general clinical population? There'll be a lot of people who listen to this pod who are just s- psychologists who don't work with this population. So kind of just continuing on with what you were talking about, but what comes to mind?
2: I think when I talk about taking information with a grain of salt and keeping in mind any personality traits, all of that aside, it depends partly in the environment that you're working in because there's got to sort of be in the back of your mind the consideration of any ulterior motives, not for you as a clinician and not even necessarily not from you as a clinician, (laughs) not towards you as a clinician and not even necessarily conscious on the part of the client. But if you've got someone in prison who wants to do all they can to get out... Mm sometimes it can look good if you've gone and spoken to someone and sometimes people think that it might be really helpful to the court or their lawyer has suggested maybe going and seeking some mental health treatment might look really good so i think i think while and in my experience while that can be somebody's sort of initial motivation mm. it doesn't it doesn't always end up like that there's lots of people who might think that's all they're going for and then and then do actually find that they get more out of it or that the clinician has been able to turn it into something that they do find useful, even if they think that's the initial aim. And often the expectations of what they might get out of it, say that it might look good or they might get a certificate that they can show the court, isn't always what they actually get. So, so they might come thinking, oh, well, this, this will look really good to my lawyer, but actually the role of the person they're seeing, they don't have mm. any contact with the lawyer. So I think, I think keeping that sort of stuff in mind is always really important in a forensic context and I think that's also often the case if you're doing something, I've spoken primarily about sort of clinical work in a forensic setting, but if you're doing something like pre-sentence reports and assessments or assessments for mental impairment those sorts of things, you do have to be really careful about whether somebody's feigning something, how truthful they're being. This is definitely the case if you're doing something like a family violence assessment, mm. actually keeping in mind how much of the story you're getting is honest and open mm. and how much of it is not. And as I said, how much of it is not either consciously or subconsciously. You know, people inherently want to present well. Yeah. So, you know, some people some people are really good at being really candid and open and honest and other people aren't. (laughs) It sounds like it would add a whole other layer of complexity to clinical work,
1: like of kind of having that not just listening and responding empathetically and kind of trying to get on the same page, but also in the back of your mind kind of going like, how much of this is, is truthful or how much of this, how much do I go down that path? It's sort of adds a layer of doubt that I think perhaps a lot of people wouldn't have experienced as much in their clinical work.
0: Although, to be contrarian, like I was just thinking about some of the clinical work I do and often you get patients who are referred to psychology within the hospital setting and they are they've been picked up by some staff member that they're not coping mm. and they get they come to see the psychologist and they're trying to show that they're doing well when really yeah. they're not doing that well. That's sort of interesting
1: yeah yeah that kind of thing of presenting well is probably the thing that's common across because certainly the case with like parents whose kids come to therapy or things like that it's probably just about the how concrete that outcome is like you know whether it's just a case of i want to appear you know more well adjusted for social reasons versus i want to get out of prison Mm, absolutely yeah
2: so I think and I think that's interesting and would be interesting from from your perspectives in your training is I think that's something we're we're taught about a lot and we're taught not only sort of in in forensic training how to ask questions in a way that might get at that or how to continue to be aware of that but also assessment measures that might help so if you're doing a battery of tools what you might add to try and get at some of these things and I often assume that we all get that in all of our psychology training because as you said it's not only present in forensic yeah. populations sometimes it has more legal ramifications <laughs> yeah. and if if you're an expert or witness legal ramifications <laughs> yeah. if you're um, if you're an expert witness on the stand you don't want to end up looking like a fool because somebody has said one thing to you and then the expert witness for the other side That's has been so told something totally different. You want to be sort of clear on that sort of stuff, but it's still present in non-forensic samples.
0: You said before, like, a patient or an individual might come to therapy for other reasons and then a clinician is able to sort of get in there somehow and sort of turn it. Like, tell us a bit about that process as a clinician. Like,
2: I think it's so it's so broad. It's like as broad as... Clinical psychology. Yeah. So, it depends on the setting that you're working in and the population you're working with. For example, I've worked and spent some time in a remand prison. Yeah. Um, and so, as you can imagine, with a prison full of people who are on remand, there's a lot more stress and anxiety than there might be. So, in- remand,
0: remand is for people who don't know it?
2: Um, romance for people who haven't been sentenced yet. yeah, so they've uh, they've been arrested and are in prison, but they're still awaiting trial. And generally that time that they spend in prison counts to whatever their sentence is, it's taken off. Mm-hmm. But it's an incredibly stressful time, because regardless of the crime you've committed, regardless if it's your first or your tenth, you don't actually know what that outcome is going to be. yeah. And so that's a time that you find people, as you would in the community, who are incredibly anxious about the outcome, what that means, how they support their family at home, if there's people who they were caring for or if there's kids, whether their partner's going to want to stay with them, like all of the possible things you can think of if you were – whisked away suddenly, for the right or wrong reasons, <laughs> all of that aside, yeah. if you were suddenly taken from that setting and didn't actually know how long you were going to be away for, that's an incredibly stressful and anxiety-provoking situation. So that's when you end up, again, it, it varies depending on the prison you're in and the population you're working with. The remand prison I was in was all male, yeah, and so you had a lot of anger, and a lot of, from a clinician's perspective, it was really, I found that a really rewarding place to work, and... Even within forensic psychologists, it varies the sort of forensic work they enjoy. I really liked that because I was faced with so many clients who had no idea how to express emotion, were allowed to be angry. Yeah. So that's what they presented with, and how many of them had never considered that maybe that anger was hiding other stuff that was going on. Mm. And so, you know, lots of lots of guys who had horrible backgrounds that you know I, I can't imagine how I would cope in the sorts of situations that lots of them had been in and were angry at the world and often this is sort of driving behaviour and how they perceive the world and and that was covering such hurt or such sadness and such grief and loss and all sorts of things that you can imagine. So,
0: I mean, I'm imagining the process there would be kind of being able to work that out, label that a little bit and then kind of peel back the layers a little bit and kind of get at the core emotion. Is yep. that sort, of the, sort yeah. of the kind of thing?
2: Yeah, and I think, again, people's modalities that they prefer to use vary. Yeah, I, I'm i very cognitively based and being a new clinician, I'd like to try and make sure I'm good at one or two things before branching out too much. Good idea. Um, <laughs> so, CBTs a modality I've been taught in, I feel comfortable with. And what I've really enjoyed is working out bits and pieces of that, how to explain that for a population who aren't psychologists, who don't think about things in the same way I do. So trying to explain that in a way that is not only understandable, but usable to clients and then incorporating other things, say for a remand population, sort of act principles and mindfulness principles that can help with more of the acceptance because if you're on remand challenging that you're on remand isn't going to change being on remand no no so that's where some act principles can come in or some dbt as you said not full dbt in prison but some of the principles and the sort of more emotion focused stuff can be really useful okay. in those settings so but yeah i think it i think it totally varies if you're working in like a forensic hospital for example then you often have clients who have much more pervasive mental illness presentations that have been receiving treatment for many many years and you adjust your goals with what you can expect to achieve and how you do that and that varies entirely again from offense specific work where you're trying to help mandated clients who don't want to see you at all (laughs) How you can try and get them to actually feel like it's a valuable experience, which you don't always, and desist from a behaviour that is happening for whatever reason. Yeah, that was one of our questions we had about kind of those like,
1: mandated clients who don't want to be there and how you actually sort of build that relationship or make it useful or even just manage that feeling as a clinician of going, I'm sitting across from someone who really does not want to be here.
2: I think at those times you often reflect on what a good learning experience this is. <laughs> <laughs> Such a tactful answer. <laughs> and I think I think it varies and I think it's it's again a really interesting situation to be working with someone in and you know there's lots of people who in our community who work with mandated clients yeah. not just psychologists but I guess it's also a situation where a mandated client, you might come across someone who perhaps presents with traits that you wouldn't see in other therapeutic settings. For Mm. example, if you have someone with narcissistic PD traits, by the very nature of having narcissistic PD traits, they're not often sort of sending themselves into therapy or intervention because they think they need help. They don't. Mm. So working with a mandated client like that can be quite difficult and sometimes you get through to them and the, the work you do is really valuable and important and you can help them to change through things like like offense processes like you do with Any sort of behaviour, you look at what's feeding into this Mm behaviour and what's contributing to it and what they feel and what you as a clinician feel might be risk factors and discussing those. Similarly, what might be protective factors and how do we sort of enhance those and understanding all of the sort of aspects around their offending behaviour. And that can be a really rewarding process. But if you've got somebody who spends most of their time trying to distract you and redirect a session or arguing with you or insisting that you don't care Mm. or suggesting that maybe it's your fault they're in any of these situations Mm. or whatever it might be, that's incredibly difficult. And Mm. so I think that's, again, this idea of adjusting expectations. You sort of work, as you would in any field, with your client to work out, well, look, if they're not at the point of working through an offence map, then that's not what we're going to do because that's not going to be useful. It's just going to get them offside. And so you take it all back and look at, well, can I at least build a relationship with this person? If I can't build a relationship where they respect me and my role and feel that I am trying to help them, Mm. is there a way that I can point out what they can get out of this and how they can benefit? And I think that's something that you, with experience, get an idea for what that might look like and how that might be. Okay, right. so if you just want to get to the end of your mandated period, how do we do that where this time is actually useful? Because it's not pleasant for you or me <laughs> to be sitting here for an hour every week with you telling me I don't care yeah. or whatever it might be. So I think, I think it's tiring in sessions like yeah. that, but can also be a real growth as a clinician, um, <laughs> but also I think incredibly important when there's not often alternatives.
0: So on that Do you think that people who are attracted to this field, there's something about them that leads them to be able to tolerate that more than, say, other clinicians?
2: Not at the outset. I I did not have a thick skin <laughs> at the outset. And I think that's, again, something that you can be attracted to forensics for other reasons. And so many different aspects of forensics. Like some people love working in the mental health side of forensics. Some people love working in that sort of assessment, expert witness side of things. I quite enjoy and lots of clinicians enjoy splitting their time between research and clinical work because I feel that it allows me some cognitive space from each of those things, respectively which are quite different mm. and then i'm a much better clinician on those days
0: yeah it's interesting like i used to work in oncology a couple of days a week and then work in sort of general psychology practice a couple of days a week and i always said to everybody that i like that balance because it kind of gave me space sort of what you're talking about and actually the work in one field actually somehow informed the other in, in vice versa that kind of stuff is it taught to you uh, how to manage these patients Is it, or is it a mixture of like learning on the job as well?
2: I think it's a bit of both. It's similar to other fields. We get taught a lot in our coursework and our classes and that's, that's really, really useful. And that's a lot more of the sort of theoretically practical stuff. So what to sort of look for and how you might go about intervening with particular mental health presentations, but also particular offences. You know, why is somebody who's lighting fires potentially lighting fires? What do you look for in something like that versus someone who's stalking? All those sorts of things. I think in terms of how to manage that sort of in-the-room dynamic stuff is something that you really learn most about when you're on your clinical placements and on-the-job encounters. And I think that's where working, particularly in this area, working – in a team and when you're a new clinician working with close supervision where you feel comfortable bringing up stupid things you've said or uncomfortable things that a client has said i think that's crucial in how you develop
0: yeah totally i always think the best tip for supervision is you talk about something you want to talk about and talk about something you don't want to talk about
2: yeah and i think that's where you know the most daunting thing to me is having a supervisor or colleagues sit in a session with me, Yeah. but is also the most valuable learning that I've had.
0: I've had students sit in on my sessions as well. <laughs> <So> That's <they're still laughs> as well. Yeah. So, so Amy and I were talking. we were sort of thinking, like, in a practical sense, what do you do to kind of manage safety and? What?
1: Yeah, because I feel like. You would have to be more aware of safety with this population. We're all told a couple of, you know, little tips in clinical training, things like sitting close to the door or knowing where the alarm button is or whatever, if there is one, and if it's not in a ridiculous placement. But is that something that you're taught about, kind of managing your safety in the room Or is that another one of those things that kind of just evolves over time where you learn to figure that out?
2: A little bit of both. It often depends on the setting. Obviously, somewhere like a prison have quite strict and clear policies around this sort of stuff Mm -hmm. most of the time. And so there'll be things about the sort of specific rooms you're supposed to be in and who faces which door and, you know, in hospitals or other settings that are set up sort of around a unit that if a room has multiple doors which door you let a client in and out of mm-hmm. you know maybe the one that goes back onto the unit not the one that goes out into the nurse's station or yeah. whatever that might be so there's quite clear guidelines around that sort of thing around safety more generally I wouldn't say there's that much more training than clinically there would hmm. be so things like I don't know don't sit with your knees touching your clients yes. <laughs> like, like yeah. stuff that stuff yeah. that you wouldn't do anyway and yeah. I think again depending on your setting you You're aware of your surroundings and that sort of stuff and all of the forensic locations that I've worked at. There's drills for different scenarios. So, you know, if you've got someone who's pressed a duress alarm in a clinic room, you've got responders and everybody knows what to do and where to go. And I think that's really important in a workplace like that and ensures that everybody feels safe, Mm -hmm. including other clients. You know, there's we've had a client run out of a room fuming before trying to have an angry display and instead fluttering pamphlets everywhere <laughs> 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 albeit not as intimidating as he thought it would be but a room a yeah. waiting room full of other clients who that's Weren't not sure yeah that's what not might have happened. a particularly comfortable thing to be around so yeah. I think being aware in a forensic setting not just of yourself and fellow clinicians but other clients as well yeah do you find that you have to be more aware of that kind of thing if you're doing forensic stuff versus clinical or
1: is it kind of just become part of your you know professional hat
2: depends on the setting yeah I think again so yeah. like when i've been in somewhere like community mental health i've been as aware of my surroundings and as alert as other places. I think also um, as you become more used to an environment, I remember when I first Mm. went into prison, I was so stressed and tight and (laughs) (laughs) I thought just walk everywhere with a purpose. I had no idea where I was going, (laughs) didn't know if it was the right direction, (laughs) but I thought this is the unit I want to go to, I will go there. And that sort of changes over time, not to the point where you're sort of lax and aren't aware of your surroundings or your safety, but where you're a little bit more confident about the processes and the procedures.
1: It almost sounds like there are more things set up to manage safety that in a way kind of counterbalances the risk as well. Like I I feel like like in community there's not necessarily stuff there where you can easily call for help. So sometimes that sense of risk feels higher than perhaps in a setting where everyone knows exactly what has to happen.
2: Mm, I think so. And I'm not sure what the stats are around how frequently there are problems or risk issues in different settings. Mm. So I know everybody is much more hypervigilant in a forensic setting. Yeah. I don't know how much more often there are incidences, but I do get the feeling that people are more aware of the processes when there is one. Mm. You know, when there's been an incident for me in community mental health, there was a lot more phoning around to figure out who knew which form I had to fill out and who to call and where did the client go? (laughs) Then who
1: exactly was supposed to respond to that alert? Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. When I worked in drug and alcohol, we had much similar rehearsed procedures and stuff like that. And then, yeah, it's been interesting on the rare occasions that stuff's come up in the hospital, there's a lot more confusion in the moment and how to manage that kind of stuff. And because I had some training, I was able to manage the situation, like I wasn't too concerned. But you could imagine how quickly those circumstances could just, go awry in an area where it's actually not practice or something. It's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and I guess that's it. Better to be overprepared than to have no idea what's going on and for things to get out of hand.
0: So getting back onto kind of like antisocial personality and, and psychopathy and stuff like that, when you're working with someone with that, what's sort of the aim of treatment? I guess it depends on the setting you're in, but like how often would you be trying to address an antisocial pattern of behaving?
2: I think it depends in part on, as you said, the setting, but the goal of treatment. Yeah. So if somebody is coming to you voluntarily to manage their anxiety, for example, or something like that, and how much their antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy or traits are actually playing into that. Yeah. Yeah, if the problem they're presenting with is very much linked in with, say, antisocial attitudes... I was talking recently with some colleagues about the entitlement behind something like burglary. And the number of antisocial attitudes that come out in people when, say, they have robbed somewhere. Attitudes like, well, they didn't put their stuff away, therefore it was mine. Or somebody has done this to me, so it's fine for me to do it to someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they clearly have enough and I don't, Yeah. and so this is okay. And by all means, these, these are generalizations and not everybody presents these. But, but those are some of these. those
0: classic core beliefs that like, I think we talked about on the pod. Yeah, and
2: so if that's sort of tying into someone's distress and mental illness, you know, if that's sort of feeding anxiousness or they're the thoughts underlying a depressive presentation or something like that, then that would be really key to target in the treatment. Yeah. If... On the other hand, somebody has all these antisocial beliefs that you desperately want to get at but actually they're there to see you because they're having panic attacks for a totally unrelated reason because they don't like the cell they're in because they're not used to being in such a close confined space. If they're presenting with something that's not intrinsically linked with the psychopathic traits or the antisocial PD, then it's not necessarily something you target at that point. And I think that's partly coming back to what clinicians have the capacity to do. So we don't have a huge amount of funding for forensic psychology in prisons. And so targeting the whole host of things that people have going on, and there are a lot, they're not a worried well sample... Is just not realistic. And somebody, when I first got into a therapeutic role in a prison, I was finding it really hard to manage that because as a clinician, I wanted to help these people and I could see how much adversity they had faced regardless of what they'd done. And I really wanted to help with all of that. And there just wasn't the capacity. I didn't have the time and yeah. didn't have the number of sessions I was allowed to spend with them to do that. And somebody said to me, in this setting, you've got to treat it like a dosage. It's like a dosage of medication where we give them what we can and we hope that something sticks from that. And unfortunately, a lot of them you'll see back again and you can give them a second dose Yeah, and others you hope carry that on and go into the community. Yeah.
0: It's interesting because I often think that way about, I used to think, you know, psychology is about curing people. So you can almost think of it was like, you know, it's like chemotherapy, you know, we cure the cancer. And then I think... I've become a better clinician by sort of taking things like, oh, I'm, I'm like Panadol. You know, like, you know here's a problem. All right, well, let's see what we can do about this problem. And sometimes you kind of, depending on the, if you're lucky or the circumstances or the willingness of the individual to work, to be able to kind of become the chemotherapy, hopefully. But you never know. So, and
2: I think it's a good point. I would challenge that slightly. Yeah. With a very poor understanding of how chemotherapy works. Um, <laughs>
0: Poison's a cancer more than the person. <laughs> yeah.
2: I wouldn't think of us as the poison so much as <laughs> <laughs> affording the individual their own ability <laughs> to be poisonous. <laughs> good, good metaphor, Hunter. <laughs> but that idea of providing them with a positive therapeutic experience at the outset and trying to put them in a position where they can help themselves yeah. because... While a lot of clients, whether whether it's leaving prison or leaving the clinic you're at, while a lot of them, you want to hold their hand and make sure they're okay and make sure that, you know, they do that thing that you really wanted them to do. Not in all cases, but in, <laughs> but in some, we we can't do that. And that's something we have to manage as clinicians. But also in that setting, something that can be, I think, very empowering in how you manage your intervention yeah, right. and how you teach that to a client. And I think that's coming back to something like how you turn something like CBT into something that's palatable and interpretable and memorable for a client who does not care about all the training you have done and your worksheet does not make any sense to them. They just want to stop feeling this thing right now.
1: Yeah. I think that kind of feeds into another question we had about how important is it to believe that the people you're working with can check that kind of hope that something will be different.
2: I think it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I like to think of myself as quite hopeful and optimistic and some people have said that will change the longer I'm in the field. <laughs> I don't think that's a very positive outlook.
1: No, not um, much hope in that, does but it? But I
2: think something I have learnt about forensics is everybody has quite a dark and dry sense of humour. Mm. Perhaps you need that. But I also think that for people working clinically in something like forensics, you have to have that sense of hope. Yeah. And I don't think that means you have the same expectations of what can Mm. be achieved for all clients in all settings just like in the gamut of clinical psychology settings but I think you do need a degree of hope and you need to have that confidence in your client whilst also balancing the understanding of what they're actually facing and I think this often makes me think of an area like drug and alcohol and that dichotomy that you often see in people where they this idea of a medical model of Mm. drug abuse and addiction versus this is their own fault they could change this if they wanted to Mm. and i think there's a similar dichotomy in forensics which you don't necessarily have to be exposed to to take a different view but once you've been exposed to it reinforces beliefs that i have personally about things like yes i work really hard and that pays off but by no means do i think that i am where i am just because I work hard mm. and we don't all start on an even playing field yeah. and we're not all just <laughs> a blank slate that mm. can achieve the same amount with what we've got. Yeah. And I think this is a perfect setting where we see that and that's why I do things like turn off talk back radio <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> it's so frustrating sometimes, particularly when we're looking at things like the issues around youth justice at mm. the moment. And while I haven't worked clinically in youth justice – my research is youth-focused and you can see in our individuals in adult incarceration and involved in the adult justice system how often that did not start there. Yeah, yeah, that it started in
1: childhood yeah. adolescence and then has tracked all the way through.
2: Yeah, so I don't think you need to have a bleeding heart yeah. to do this work and I don't think you need to be approving of behaviour that is against the law or how you wouldn't behave yourself, mm. but I think having... A more open mind and making sure there's an evidence base behind your opinions (laughs) (laughs) can be valuable.
0: (laughs) Liz is being extremely diplomatic. Um, (laughs) Self conscious now. (laughs) I guess I think one of the things I'm very interested in is like, you know, so. When you get this severe and just getting back to the ASPD, the psychopath stuff, I was talking to a a colleague of mine about that we were going to be talking to you. And I guess her kind of thing was, what's the aim of treatment when you've got someone who's a psychopath or like a severe antisocial personality disorder? And is treatment effective?
2: I think this is part of the problem with labelling psychopathy. Yeah. And why there's so much hesitation around it. Because as we as we all know, somebody gets a diagnosis, it sticks, whatever it is. Follows them forever, whether it's accurate or not. Psychopathy is no different, or antisocial personality disorder, because psychopathy is not a DSM diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Though we assess for risk using the psychopathy checklist revised Mm -hmm. in forensic settings, as an aside. But in terms of what you'd then focus on in treatment, again, it's about assessing that idea of a dimension. So how antisocial is this person? Or how psychopathic is this person? What does that actually look like? What traits does this person have? Are those traits amenable to change? How relevant are they? And with someone who is really at that pointy end of the spectrum, where At this point, we have limited evidence for what interventions work, particularly in not even just in treating psychopathy, but in doing things like changing behavior. So in something like a risk reduction in reoffending, it's really got to focus on, as you guys said last week, what the individual can gain. So if they don't care about what they're doing, if they don't care about the person they're hurting, if they don't have remorse, if they're a person they're hurting, if they have no remorse for what they're doing, lacking empathy, they're very grandiose, so they don't think there's a problem, they're fine with all of that, that really pointy end, then trying to appeal to their empathic side or get them to understand how it's affecting others it really isn't going to do a whole lot. For lots of people you can get there, but for the pointy end you can't always, and so it's more about, well, what does changing this behaviour actually provide you with does it provide you with more opportunities to not be in prison (laughs) and actually there's more in life that you enjoy outside of prison than inside
0: so using that kind of therapeutic hook that kind of like using their own self-interest yeah Yeah. and
2: i think that's something that can apply with psychopathic traits antisocial traits other traits in pd like we were talking about before the narcissism so you know i've worked with people who had those really strong traits as I said who didn't want to be in a room with me and so it was much more about appealing to their own self-interest and okay so I get that you don't want to be here and you don't care about anybody else or at least the people who are being impacted by these crimes or these crimes themselves so how do we actually get you to a point where there's something you want so a lot of it's about trying to figure out what that is what is it this person values or enjoys and how can we get them more of that and everybody's got something that's not mm. illegal <laughs> that they can <laughs> I- enjoy. You know, is it something...
0: <laughs> not Amy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Amy <laughs> likes pastry a lot. <laughs> I do like I could, uh, <laughs> could wrangle that into therapy. <laughs> but yeah, I think things like, I don't know, an example of the time we had money. Yeah. People like having money. Is there a way that treatment with this person to desist in the behaviours that they're engaging in, yeah. whatever it might be, can allow them a greater opportunity to maintain work. Mm. Work less, make more. (laughs) Short of being a financial advisor, like if there's something that you can use that gets that person what they want, at the end of the day, if you can't help them to better themselves as a person... If they don't have values that they want to fulfill or anything like that, if it's much more externally driven, then that's what you do. Because depending on the therapeutic space that you're in at times, particularly in forensics, preventing the behavior from occurring again is protecting the community as well as the individual.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and saving the community money and all that kind of stuff. And in that way, you can definitely see parallels to, like, motivational interviewing or, like, say, drug and alcohol. That classic comes to mind of, like, working with people where I would work out. They'd all be poor. They wouldn't have much money. And so I'd always work out how much money you were spending on drinking a week and then work it out across a year. Mm. And often that was really a good piece of the puzzle to kind of get people just even thinking about, let's say, well, if you didn't do this, you can't convince somebody that... Being drunk or being high isn't fun. That's a fool's errand. So you have to kind of work somewhere else.
2: Exactly. And I think that's a good point. You can have your own ideas about something. And it's an area where in training, and I think all forensic psychs go through this, you've got to sort of be really careful about when your personal views on somebody's lifestyle choices are coming into therapy and whether you're trying to change somebody's behavior or things they're doing in their life because you think – It's wrong versus what they actually want and what the community needs and whether it's breaking the law, for example. You know, if if they are choosing to sit at home and smoke and drink, like you said, working in drug and alcohol, you might think that's wrong or whatever, but if they don't... You can throw your message home as much as you like. It's not necessarily going to make them change. Yeah. You've got to actually work with, work with them. And I, I guess that's the same for working with mental illness and <laughs> that dreaded word homework, how you package psychological strategies for somebody that makes it doable.
0: Just on that, do you actually give prisoners worksheets and homework to do outside? Like I just, I just suddenly there's the image of giving your prisoner a monitoring sheet <laughs> <laughs> and just like, <laughs> how does that work?
2: I think you might know me too well. <laughs> I do. I've worked with you. <laughs> <laughs> I like worksheets. Not always. I think <laughs> she's got them very well organized. You'd love it. <laughs> All right. I, well,
0: now I'm getting the conversation, the subtext. Yeah.
2: I have them very well organized. They don't always get used. I think stuff that I really like the look of, I like worksheets and yeah. that sort of stuff. And again, it's this thing where I've got to keep in mind, well, just because I do doesn't mean other people do. And so I think, and how everybody practices is different. I go in and say that to clients and I say I work well with worksheets I work well visually
0: this is what I do, yeah, yeah. This, is
2: what I do. this is what I'll start with but we need to figure out what works for you yeah. and so for some people you know I, I do things like I print out little grounding cards and that's something that you know often if you're a prisoner you don't want to be waving around your mental illness worksheets it's something yeah. that is often kept quite Private. So if you've got a little grounding card or something that you can feel in your pocket, it's more likely to be used and to work. Little reminders like that or things like if you're thinking about an environment like prison, they don't have a whole lot to do. And so things like mindful colouring, something like that can actually be really good. And so you can get pictures or things that they might so like. my
0: experience of mindful colouring is that <laughs> it gets me angry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, yeah. So you work with your client. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. So whatever it might be, you sort of figure out what works. And if, if they're not if they're not the sort of client that's gonna work with worksheets or something like that, you don't do it. But some of them do. And there's in a lot of the settings I've been in, there's a lot of group work as well. And so typically wherever I've been, forensic or otherwise, you get more worksheets in a group. And, you know, they have their little folders that they never bring back and <laughs> where they are supposed to put all their worksheets in a nice little pile. Sometimes happens. Yeah. They do their homework as they're walking back to group next week.
0: So Yeah, but I was thinking about it, mate. I was think I was thinking about it all week. Yeah,
2: yeah. I was meaning to. <laughs> Stuff just came up, like I was really busy and it just <laughs> happens a just lot. Have time,
1: yeah. <laughs> when you do group therapy, is there usually two psychs and how big a group? And some um guards. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> again it depends on the setting like you're in a prison there are prison officers on all the units and a lot of them have like an education space and there'll be like a gatehouse where basically prisoners movements are monitored so you know they've got their cards and everything so there's no sort of space (laughs) where it's just you and you don't have access to the prison officers also because they know the processes and the systems and Often prisoners will ask you something and you've got no idea who's where, when, or something like that. So there'll be offices around, but often all the rooms will have windows. So it adds visibility, which can also sometimes hinder mm. what happens in therapy, particularly in terms of like people getting distracted if someone's walking in or out or that yeah. sort of thing but at the same time it's part of the environment yeah. everybody's aware of it and everybody's quite used to it yeah. in terms of groups typically there'd be two facilitators mm-hmm. and anywhere between 5 and 10 people in a group okay. depending yeah. on depending on what the group's on yeah so you know mood disorder groups emotion regulation groups those sorts of things you can typically have sort of closer to that 10 mark and Mm. be okay, whereas if they're more in-depth groups that require, say, more of the facilitator's time with each person, it might be a bit smaller. And I think group work in a forensic setting is really, really interesting because like in many settings, if they can gain something valuable from each other, it's more likely to stick and they find that typically – more useful yeah, than, an than external person. what I'm saying to yeah. them, which, you know, I hate to believe but <laughs> is the case. And I think that's really good to see as well because while everybody sort of seems to know everybody in prison, it can be quite isolating. Mm. And so that goes both ways, I yeah. think. You've got people who can be a really good influence on each other and likewise sometimes you end up with a group where maybe you would have preferred it if they didn't all meet each other. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> interesting.
0: If you're a clinician, and you're working just general community, and you come across someone with these kinds of aggressive antisocial traits or, or traits, as the case may be. Um, the uh, the uh, see every pod for that. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, I guess like what's sort of one sort of simple thing to kind of keep in mind for a clinician working with someone like that? Just sort of something simple to kind of think about.
2: I think for a lot of people presenting in that way, there's more to it. Yeah, and so like you would with, I imagine, <laughs> a child who somebody said there's something wrong and they're not telling you anything. Yeah. You don't take that at face value. You don't go, oh, well, look, they're not saying anything, they must be fine. Or somebody who's downplaying their drug and alcohol problem, no, I don't have anything wrong at all, but you're here. All of those sorts of presentations are the same thing with somebody who's being aggressive. being something. aggressive. I think, obviously, be aware of your surroundings and make sure that you're safe and, as much as possible, work and communicate with your colleagues and make sure that you're aware of your organisation's policies around that because it's about protecting yourself and protecting that person if you can. But, yeah, if you're working with somebody therapeutically in that setting, don't write off that they're just a horrible person.
0: There's stuff going on. Good answer. There's a lot of stuff going on under it.
1: We did want to wrap up with a lighter question, I suppose. (laughs) These haven't been heavy. No, no not too <laughs> bad at all. <laughs> so we had a range of questions about kind of pop culture. What annoys you about how forensic psychs are portrayed on TV or movies? I'm assuming they're perfectly accurate. what right?
2: annoys me. Oh, I'd love to think that I'm as active as some of them, but I'm not.
0: Active <laughs> <laughs> how?
2: Well, firstly, forensic psychs in movies and on TV, like forensic anything, seem to do all of the forensics.
0: Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, all so,
2: so I think... One thing that irritates me is that a forensic psychologist is also a police officer and a detective and a blood spatter analysis. we, we, we did
0: have a sub-question, which was, yeah. is Clarice Starling, which is Jodie Foster's character in Silence of the Lambs, is she a role model? That's what we wanted to know.
2: She's my role model. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think for the sake of TV and making things interesting, forensic psychology is often portrayed as something that police do, which... To be fair, it does happen more so in the States, not totally across it, but from what I've heard, something like the BAU is the behavioural analysis unit of the clinicians from Criminal Minds. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. I've, not, <laughs> but I've so, that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. So um, did you prepare for this? Some work to do. So, um, the role of mental health clinicians through wings of the FBI, things like Mindhunter, Mind yeah, which is that sort of initial birth story of forensic psychology, which is really interesting. Mm. That sort of stuff is much more accurate. Of forensic psychology in the united states we don't have anything like that here we don't have police who are trained to the same extent in forensic Mm -hmm. psychology or that same sort of crossover and that's that's changing that's growing which is good it's growing as the evidence base grows and as more research is conducted in the area which is good but i think at this point tv might more exciting
0: well i've just had the most fascinating hour. It's been so interesting. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on, and we no are going to return with things we came across. You're going to stick around for that. I will. <laughs> you're in two strings, pod. So we are having a break. Amy provided us with some pastries. Liz' review of the pastries: good, bad, ugly. Mm,
2: Pretty good, especially when they ended up in Amy's hair. (laughs)
0: that was fun so uh, this is part of the show where we say thanks for listening and if you like the show please rate and review uh, the show but also subscribe to the show and also one of the things we know is that people find out about podcasts through word of mouth so if you like this episode or this podcast please tell someone about it and uh, let others know because that would be really good we really enjoy doing the show I think I'm going to keep it short and sharp all right so uh, we will be back with things we came across you listen to Two Shrinks Pod and we're back. So, this is our segment, if you've not heard this podcast, called uh, Things We Came Across, which is where we talk about an article that's psychologically related or something that we might have come across. Because whenever you're doing a literature search, you always find something that looks far more interesting than whatever it is that you're searching on. I don't know, have you had the experience?
2: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> so, we're going to start with Amy. And where are you going to take us?
1: Survivor. <laughs> So the new season of Survivor has started in Australia and so I had to search for that after my initial search term of Nutella ended me (laughs) nowhere useful. (laughs) So Survivor was the next logical thing. Uh, So I found an article that's kind of related to what we've been talking about called Surviving Survivor, a content analysis of antisocial behavior and its context in a popular reality TV show. Good find. Yeah, I was pleased. Uh, So it's by Wilson and colleagues in Mass Communication and Society in 2012. So they talk about how a lot of the people who have won Survivor have done so with quite sort of antisocial attitudes. And they sort of in their introduction quote the guy Herzog who won season 15 in America saying, I knew that I played a game where I had to lie and backstab and had to hurt people that I cared about. And that's kind of like essentially what a lot of people have to do to be able to win. So they did a study where they wanted to look at the content of Survivor over 76.4 hours of Survivor watching, Uh, So which was, I think, seven seasons. Which
0: sounds awesome. (laughs) Yeah.
1: They also did a literature review, which I admittedly skimmed over, but there was a whole bunch of stuff about both what has been done before in reality TV research and then things about the impact of watching violence on tv on then individuals kind of cognition and stuff like that anyway i'll jump to the results so what they found was that in the you know 76 hours of footage they coded 4207 antisocial acts at a rate of 45.7 per hour <laughs> so which i mean given that the the show is about an hour That's a lot. So the most common was indirect aggression followed by verbal aggression. And then there were acts of deceit, um, minor physical aggression and theft. Most were counted as malicious. It was a smaller proportion that were inconsiderate and some that were thoughtless. And then what they didn't go into a lot, but which I was interested by, was that the producers instigated more aggression than the cast. So they counted those as things like when something had happened at the camp that then someone who'd been involved in like a disagreement or something would then be pulled out to give one of those kind of talking heads things, which then meant that the conflict couldn't resolve or perpetuate it because it interrupted the flow of the conversation at the camp. And so they found 1,620 aggressive acts by the producers which is just interesting.
0: I think one of the things I always think about is like, it's kind of like sort of uh, non-violent Hunger Games, really. Yeah. Like <laughs> you're like, you And I think it's kind of interesting is that what's similar about those two things is you're put into a scenario where the expectation is that you're going to be doing this. Like it's sort of, it's you're sort of given sanction and license to it. And then definitely in the Australian Survivor, there can sometimes be that tension of like, oh, you're playing the game. I'm not playing the game, kind of tension, and then, but then what's much more interesting is when that's not present and it's actually just people playing the game and just going for it. So,
2: I don't know if the American one's different, but is that an editorial flaw, like in their study? Like, are people actually being torn away mid-conversation, or are we just only being shown the start of it? Yeah, and then it's cutting to a conversation that they've had with the editors after the conversation's resolved. Yeah. They just don't think anybody's going to be interested in seeing the resolution of Possibly. conflict.
1: Yeah, because they didn't specify, so it's possible that... I'm very sceptical of not.
2: editors and how they make me feel. Yeah. I think that's... Intentionally. I think that's really fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: How far do you... Amy and I have this constant discussion about how far we'd get and what, what strategies we'd use in Survivor. How far do you reckon you'd get Oh, survived? not far at all. Not far at all? No. You get weeded out quick.
2: Yes. <laughs> because I have glasses and I couldn't see. Yeah. I'd, I'd be, you know, stuck on the boat still. <laughs> I was saying to Amy, like, go.
0: and I think I said it on a previous pod, I'd just make this deal. It's like, look, I need about three weeks on the island to lose some weight. And, <laughs> and after that, whatever.
2: Well, I think it depends Depends who I was with and how they spin it. You know, I mean, I saw on a few episodes ago, I don't know, I can't remember which team it was on the Australian one, talking about their uh, their pumpkin and coconut risotto. And I could definitely get behind that. So, you know, if that's on offer, then perhaps Perhaps. I could could be quite strong if needed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So just before we move on to Liz, I did want to wrap up with a quote that they included from a New York Times reviewer, which I really liked, which said that although viewers may not personally identify with the outrageous behaviour of Survivor cast members, viewers savour the characters like a cannibal contemplating a feast. Who's next? (laughs) So (laughs) So Liz, what have you got?
2: Right. On that note, um, <laughs> I have found a paper that after finding it, apparently lots of people know about, but I've never actually had the pleasure of reading. It was written by uh, Smith and Pell in the British Medical Journal in 2003. Mm-hmm. And it's titled, Parachute Use to Prevent Death and Major Trauma Related to Gravitational Challenge. A Systematic Review of Randomised Control Trials. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Jumping straight to the results, uh, their search strategy did not find any randomised control trials of the parachute.
0: So there's no evidence that they work, is that right?
2: Yes. So the authors, to summarise an already quite short paper that I think everybody should read because it's quite poignant. (laughs) The authors make a number of key points. The first is... The natural history of a gravitational challenge, so the effectiveness of an intervention such as this one, has to be judged relative to (laughs) non-intervention. So understanding free fall is therefore imperative and they have cited the Guinness World Records that it's not inevitable that if you fall you will die or even severely injure yourself, as were the outcome criteria. Um, In fact... Somebody has fallen more than 10,000 metres and survived. I think
0: I've heard that was like hit like a uh, pine forest or something.
2: Something like that. I didn't go into details, Hunter. This was too (laughs) important (laughs) to get waylaid. So the assertion of the authors. Yes.
0: So forensic cyclics with like firm boundaries, but but warmth and (laughs) report.
2: Well, I think what is key here. (laughs) is that you can't then categorically say that parachutes are what's preventing morbidity and mortality Mm. from these gravitational challenges. So the second point they had to make was the parachute and the healthy cohort effect. So they've said that there's the possibility of bias in observational data, which they've said is what's driving this intervention's evidence base is Mm. these observational data. And so they've said that the problem and the potential bias here. Is that people who are jumping from aircraft without the help of a parachute are likely to have a high prevalence of pre existing psychiatric morbidity? Yep. Yep. Which I think is a fair point. If you're Mm. flying,
0: (laughs) is that Pod 21?
2: (laughs) 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 And that uh, individuals who do use parachutes are less likely to have psychiatric morbidity and. May also differ in uh, other key demographic factors, which cannot be measured. Then, so health makes you more aerodynamic. I think they're saying if you jump out of a plane, there's probably something psychiatrically wrong if you do it without a parachute. I think and that's so, quite judgmental. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Amy? Obs- if we're looking at observational data here, <laughs> well, I think importantly, their point is. <laughs> That perhaps there's a healthy cohort effect where the people who are jumping out of planes with a parachute may be healthier in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. And so then perhaps there's a bias of those who are jumping out of the plane with a parachute are perhaps already mm. less likely to mm. be seriously injured or yeah, die.
0: To, to suffer the effects of gravitation. Yeah. Yes, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. So
2: then they've a also... Point. A couple more points. Very serious. <laughs> they've raised perhaps something more politically relevant here, the medicalisation of freefall. <laughs> And they quote, it is often said that doctors are interfering monsters obsessed with disease and power who will not be satisfied until they control every aspect of our lives. Reference, Journal of Social Science, pick a volume. Yeah. And so we're suggesting that to use parachutes is yet another example of a natural life-enhancing experience being turned into a situation of fear and dependency. So perhaps this intervention is just another way for doctors to control our lives, suggesting that we have to jump out of planes with uh, parachutes if we want to survive. <laughs> another societally relevant point is parachutes in the military-industrial complex, and perhaps this is a parachute industry phenomenon where they're trying to make more money by promoting this as necessary 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 and they are benefiting from large organizations using their product. So in conclusion, they suggest that only two options exist. So the first is that we accept that under exceptional circumstances, common sense might be applied when considering the potential risks and benefits to the intervention. However, the second, as true scientists, is that we continue our quest for the holy grail of exclusively evidence-based interventions and preclude parachute use outside the context of a properly conducted trial. So they suggest that the dependency we have created in our population might actually make recruitment for this quite difficult. So they feel that those who advocate evidence-based medicine and criticise the use of interventions that lack an evidence base will not hesitate to demonstrate their commitment (laughs) by volunteering for a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled crossover trial. (laughs) Science at its best.
0: So, we th- was there any mention of placebo effects within that paper?
2: I don't believe there was. Because,
0: you know, like, I'm thinking you know, if you're healthier beforehand, you know, you're not suffering the effects of gravitation, but also, like, because you're wearing the, the parachute... Mm. You believe that it worked?
2: Well, I think, I mean, granted, they didn't find any trials to put in their systematic review. Yep. Their outcome was defined as death or major trauma, which was an injury severity score greater than 15. So they're really operationalizing things here. <laughs> So I think Good. in theme with their scientific approach here, placebo effect might be different.
0: Because I, I, I had a, uh, a head cold thanks to my children this weekend. And so I got to thinking about when you guys get a cold, do you have a home remedy that you guys use at all? Like what's the go-to?
1: I don't think the assortment of pharmaceutical products I obtain would be classed as a home remedy.
0: <laughs> Liz...
2: I've been turned off many of my home remedies and have been told that the only thing with an evidence base is Panadol and two tablespoons of honey.
0: Yeah, that's your your partner's a doctor, is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, I've got I like honey and lemon drink, and then I've started putting like ginger and cloves in. Just I don't know where I've got that from. I'm not actually convinced. That, that actually helps. But I was thinking, ab- the and then I, and, and I remember thinking about this because I saw a friend of mine and she'd posted like a, a photograph of honey, ginger, chili, cloves, something else. And like it was like home remedies for feeling sick or something. So it kind of got me thinking about this placebo effect. And I was like, surely there's got to be some research on that. So, I found a paper, Personality and Individual Differences 2017, one of our favorite journals. And so, it's called Cognitive Structuring and Placebo Effect. It's by Dolinska, Dolinska, and Bartel, 2017. So, last year. These are researchers from Poland and Israel. So, what they looked at was that there are some findings regarding personality differences in placebo response. So placebo response is when you have a inactive substance like a sham medication essentially and that it improves the health of some people. And surprisingly, placebo is effective in a wide range of conditions including pain, blood pressure, asthma, Parkinson's, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, insomnia, and Alzheimer's. So, take that placebo. Uh, (laughs) It's effective in a lot of conditions. Anyway, so there's been some research into personality and how that affects it, but it's not really, doesn't really explain very much variance. So, they were trying to come up with like a social psychology explanation for why this might be. They think things like classical conditioning, expectancy, observational learning are kind of like primary mechanisms and sort of like, you know, observational learning is Even better than the effect given by sort of suggestion. So, like, if you see other people taking this stuff versus, say, a doctor saying you should take this stuff, then that seems to have more of an effect. There's some sex differences, but again, they're inconsistent. They had this kind of quite complicated theory. I'm going to sum it up. They talk about cognitive structuring, and so like you have a cognitive structure which is just basically a mental representation of an idea or an object and basically this process of categorization. They seem to think that placebo effect is this acceptance of information that a given substance or treatment, like a placebo, has a given effect and that doing so, that would imply a non-reliance on existing feelings, thoughts and beliefs. So I know that's kind of wordy, but basically like you believe that this works against all your kind of other Mm. kinds of thoughts and beliefs. So, they seem to think that placebo would have a stronger effect on people who use less cognitive structuring, less kinds of categorization and ordering. And so, if you're highly cognitive structuring, you, you would have you would see a weaker placebo effect. They kind of seem to think that there's some people differ in terms of their need for high levels of cognitive structure, Amy Donaldson and then <laughs> not fair to
2: microphone off me. What are you saying over there?
0: <laughs> and then also they differ in terms of what they call their, their perceived ability to achieve cognitive structure or what I would say is like their self-efficacy and their ability to do that. Long story short that's exactly what they found. They had 393 women, 70 Men and they had two groups control group, and unlike your study, Liz, mm. which, they had a control group and they had a experimental group. Experimental group, they were given seven pills, some questionnaires, and the outcome measure was a Beck depression inventory. So, the stronger placebo effect implies stronger attention to information arriving from your environment and a weaker effect of the participants or the individual's existing cognitive structures, such as feelings, moods, and thoughts, which kind of makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. And they had some kind of like interesting comment towards the end around, well, that placebo is kind of controversial as a treatment from an ethical perspective. But I remember we had a psychiatrist come and talk to us and he was sort of saying, you don't, if you're prescribing antidepressants to an individual or like a child, you don't then tell the parents, well, you know, the evidence around antidepressants in children is kind of mixed. You go, this will be really, really good <laughs> because you could undo any kind of placebo effect mm-hmm. and that would be counterproductive. Yeah. So, I always think that that's kind of interesting. And that's it.
2: Thought-provoking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Comments? Did your concoction work?
0: Well, um, I don't know the head cold anymore.
2: Would it have already subsided, though? <laughs>
0: pod over. Pod over. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thanks for listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Liz, thank you so much for coming on. It's been thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Don't forget to rate and review the show on your podcast app and tell someone about the show if you liked it. We will see you next time with a discussion about avoidant personality disorder. See you soon. Bye. See ya. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simply